All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you that are at home this morning, obviously the uh, weather uh, is keeping a number of people away this morning. And we still have uh, a decent number of people with us this morning for our season of worship. So just grateful uh, to God that we can gather together and we trust that his word will be uh, meaningful and uh, powerful for your heart this morning. Uh, we asked the worship team to lay low because we knew that the return home trip is where probably most of the troubles uh, would come up. So uh, we're just going to dive into just a time of prayer, and then we're going to dive into our sermon for the morning. So just thankful that you're with us, thankful for those of you that are joining us online. So let's uh, open with just a season of prayer together. Our Father, this morning we are grateful that we have your truth to... <clears throat> hear, to heed, and to obey. Uh, I trust, God, that as we uh, proclaim your truth this morning, as we share in it together in a, in a topic that is often difficult and complicated, I pray, God, that we would find clear principles that affect our life today. Uh, we ask for your wisdom, God, in the proclamation of your truth. We pray this morning for those uh, who have been struggling with uh, various levels of sickness. God, you know who they are. We bring them to you on a regular basis. So this morning, just collectively as we pray together, we, we lift up those that come to our minds. I know just various uh, family struggles, uh, some struggles with illness. Uh, Father, we pray for your wisdom. Pray for sensitivity to your spirit to uh, be properly responsive to what uh, you are seeking to say to us and how you're seeking to guide us in those seasons of difficulty. So God, I pray those blessings over people. I pray uh, healing over those that have been struggling with long seasons of sickness. I pray strength over those who are caring for uh, needy family members, God. And it has been, I think for many, a very draining season. And so we just pray extra strength and favor. Uh, over those that are just feeling today perhaps drained and uh, weakened uh, just by all of the stresses that they're facing. Uh, we pray that you would just grant safety to those that are on the road uh, now, those that uh, will be returning home from this service and from various services in our community. God, we just pray for your favor, protection, and blessing. And Lord Jesus, our desire this morning is that as we study your word, at the end you will be exalted and you will be treasured more highly in our hearts today. Pray for these blessings in the beautiful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And uh, this is the, the uh, text that deals with the topic of marriage and divorce. So as always, our desire as believers is to know and to understand what God's word says and to accurately and appropriately apply that to specific circumstances in our lives. Uh, as I've uh, worked through my preparation for this, I've thought a lot about just the institution of marriage as a gift that God has given us. It is one of life's most intimate and rewarding relationships, but it all is also admittedly one of life's more challenging relationships. Because you will never live in closer intimacy. You will never be as exposed in a relationship as you are in the context of marriage. You know each other thoroughly. You know the good things. You know the bad things. Sometimes they call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay? 
that's just the nature of being in close relationships. And this is a text that addresses this larger picture of marriage and the topic of divorce that attends to it. My experience has been along the way that wedding ceremonies are a beautiful thing. Meticulously planned, the bride is radiant, the event celebrates beauty, hope, potentials, dreams, and anticipated joys. But the truth is that the reality of marriage often distorts that picture rather quickly. That, that hope for things to be a certain way often comes under the attack of my individual preferences, my sinful tendencies. And so this is a text in which Jesus helps us to navigate and to properly understand what do I do in my marriage relationship when things get hard, when there's difficulty, when there's struggle, when there's strife, how should we respond to it? So I'm going to read Mark chapter 10, and uh, we're going to read down through verse 12 to kind of set the larger context. Then we'll come back and walk through uh, this passage together. Verse 1, Mark 10. It says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested by asking, is it lawful? And I think it's important to notice that they're, they're, they're putting him in a spot. That's the idea of they asked the question to test him. Okay, they're putting him in a spot. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said, it was because of your heart, it is because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, this discussion about marriage and divorce. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery and the implication is against him. Okay, so what is the focal point of this text? And I, I think this text focuses on threats to marriage. In the context that we're looking at, there were selfless, ten, selfish tendencies that were posing a threat to the institution and God-given purpose of marriage. So the text starts with a question. The question comes from the Pharisees, and it's very likely that the Pharisees are trying to get a leg up on each other. In other words, within the context of the Pharisees, the religious establishment of the day, there was a divided view on the topic of divorce. Some held to a rather conservative view. Some held to an extremely liberal view. Okay? And so they had a debate amongst themselves, and it's very likely that they're dragging Jesus into their debate. 
But Jesus isn't going to play into their hand. Instead, he's going to lay out the original foundational truth in the Bible concerning the topic of marriage. So the question that's asked is very simple, right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What's the question? Can I get a divorce? That's the question, okay? In the historical setting, the religious establishment has somewhat fallen down in the area of beliefs about marriage, okay? Uh, they, if you go back to Matthew 19, same context, you're going to find that the religious establishment asked Jesus the question with a little bit more detail. The way they ask it is this. They say, is it appropriate for a man to divorce his wife for any cause or reason? Okay, the question is, can one easily slip out of their marital contract? That's the question that is being asked. Okay, so the religious establishment had kind of come up with doors that allowed you to get out of a marriage in which you were unhappy. Okay, some, some have, have said if, if the man burnt, or if the woman burnt the meat that she was cooking for dinner, the man could get a divorce. If he was unhappy with her appearance, he could get a divorce. So the, the, the debate in the culture at that time had slipped into a very distorted and twisted, weak view of marriage. And they were seeking from Jesus approval of their selfish and distorted practice. The problem in the ancient world was this. Divorce would leave a woman destitute. It would leave her in a substantially difficult position, being vulnerable, uh, being, being in a position where she would struggle. And so Jesus' response to them, and the response ultimately, if you go back into the Old Testament, of Moses to this question, aims to give protection for the woman. So they say, is it possible to get a divorce? Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Verse three. So what is Jesus doing? He's drawing them out of their cultural discussion into a biblical context. And this is what we as believers ought always to do. Whenever we're facing a question about morality, we should always ask the question, what does the Bible say? That's what defines us as biblical Christians. Okay, whether or not we do that, Jesus answers with the question, what does God say? You know, we as a church often say that our desire is to be biblical Christians. Okay, that is what we are seeking. That is what we are pursuing on a weekly basis, on Sunday morning, on a daily basis in our practical life. When we face various moral dilemmas and circumstances, the question that we need always to be asking is, what does the Bible say? What is God's directive about this or that particular situation? So verses four to five. So they say in verse four, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, so they find in the teaching of Moses permission. In some text, it says they say that Moses commanded. Okay, the truth is that what Moses gave was a concession in light of human sinfulness or human tendency. And in verses four and five, Jesus acknowledges that he is not ignorant of Moses' concession and he 
says that Moses allowed a legal document to clarify the wife's status so that the husband who divorced her could not come and go as he pleased. Okay, so that was the danger that was in focus. He would divorce his wife. He would go off and do whatever he wanted to do and suddenly desired to return. The purpose of the certificate of divorce was to clarify the woman's status, to give her legal protection and to protect her from this awkward situation that would emerge. Okay, now what they did with the statement from Moses is they twisted the concession into permission and justification for their own selfish desires. You see, what happened in the Old Testament is Moses under the direction of God, gave what we would call a concession. In light of the hard-heartedness of people, God established a regulation that would protect people from severe damage against one another in the context of the marital relationship. But they took that concession, that, 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 that permission as license to do whatever they wanted to do. Okay, what, what Moses was truthfully acknowledging was that, that in certain cases, that struggle in the marriage was so difficult and the breaking of it led to the woman being in a position of absolute destitution that Moses wrote a, a directive that was aimed at protecting the woman, not at giving permission to people to jump in and out of marriages. Does that make sense? Okay, so that, so that, that, that it wasn't to say you can do whatever you want to do. It was to give protection to the innocent party for their future life. It does not aim to justify behavior that destroys the original design and intent of God for marriage. Okay? So, in verses six through nine then, Jesus does something very interesting. He's going to appeal back to the book of Genesis to original design and he's going to build his theology and teaching about marriage based on God's original intent and God's original design. And I believe this with all my heart. That is what every believer ought to be pursuing in the context of their marriage relationships or in their prospective marriage relationships, okay, whatever it may be. Okay, we should be seeking to understand the original design and to craft and build our lives and our marriages around that picture that God established in his word. Okay, so let's uh, just jump back then in at verse six. And it's fascinating how verse six starts. It says, but at the beginning, okay, now that's, he's setting up a contrast Yes, Moses gave a concession because of the deep brokenness of the human heart and its effect on people in the context of marriage. Moses said, if you divorce your wife, you must give her written proof of that divorce so that she does not remain vulnerable either to your return or to abuse in the culture. Then he says, but, so he, he, yes, Moses allowed that, but let's look at the original design to understand what God truly intended for marriage, okay? So verse six, he's, he makes his point concerning his response by positively reinforcing the beauty, intent, and potential of God's plan for marriage. 
Okay, so let's look then at verse 6. Jesus says, but at the beginning of creation, meaning the way it was in the original design. At the beginning, God made them male and female. Now, I want to just make a couple assertions as we work through this. So Jesus kind of pushes aside the contemporary debate, returns to original design, and out of that discussion about original design for marriage, he's going to build some very simple assertions or observations concerning the issue of marriage. Verse 6 tells us very clearly that marriage is between a man and a woman. So that from the beginning, he made and rightfully directed that marriage should be between a man and a woman. Now, it's fascinating that we happen today to live in a culture where that truth needs to be reaffirmed. Okay? Because we live in a culture that has gotten very foggy and soft on the issue of gender. And when Jesus addresses this issue, he is very clear from a biblical perspective concerning this issue. At the beginning, God made them man and woman. And the only appropriate for context for marriage in terms of gender is between a man and a woman. That is what the Bible clearly asserts. Now, we live in a culture where alternative views are legal. Okay? And as Christians, here's what we need to remember. Just because something is legal does not mean that it is what? Moral. Okay? Just because something's allowed in the culture does not mean that God approves of it. And I actually hope I don't have to say that. Okay, because there's so many things in contemporary American culture that are clearly out of sync with biblical norms in terms of morality. Okay, so the the first point that is asserted is that marriage is between a man and a woman. And there is a beauty in that design. Secondly, marriage creates a bond that is permanent. Okay, so notice what it says in the next verse, verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So it goes seven into verse eight. So marriage creates a bond that by design is permanent. It stands the test of time. That statement implies that there is the possibility of hope and joy and security in the context of marriage. The approach of the Pharisees, you can see, becomes a direct assault against that truth. Can I get rid of my wife for any reason is really what they're asking. If I'm unhappy, I'm dissatisfied, I'm disgruntled, can I just move on? Jesus says, you know, there are certain specific situations in the Old Testament where Moses gave a concession regarding that, but that concession was because of the hardness of your heart and the damage being done to people. But the original design is a call that a man and a woman would come together in a relationship that is characterized by permanence. Now I want you to notice the way that that is kind of asserted in this text. It's said in two ways. They leave mother and father and are united to one another. Okay, here's the idea. In every marriage, 
a young man typically and a young woman typically are born into a family. Okay, and eventually they fall in love. These two individuals fall in love with one another. And on the day of their marriage, they are called by God to leave their original family unit and follow this and create a new family unit. Okay, so there is at some level a clear declaration by design of independence, right? So they leave that environment, they move into a new environment, they become what their parents are. Okay? And the way that the text says it, it says that they are, they, there is this idea of them being united and the two become one flesh. Now the one flesh picture is very interesting in context. It's clearly referring to the act of marriage. Just I'm going to speak slightly euphemistically, okay? Because of the age groups that are present with us. But, but the, the, the discussion is clearly about the act of union in marriage. That that physical act is a picture of a biblical truth. A God-intended truth. That God has designed men and women for physical intimacy. And that act of physical intimacy is protected by God to occur only in the context of marriage because it is meant to have an adhesive quality. It is meant to create between that man and that woman a sense of permanence. It pictures a bond, a coming together. Does that make sense? Okay, and it is, it is that bond that the, directs, the directives of marriage, broadly speaking in Scripture, aim to protect. Okay? So a lot of times people haven't thought about that. So when we think about, in our culture, topics like sexual promiscuity, okay, people sleeping with multiple people, we need to understand that 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 physical intimacy that God designs between a man and a woman is to create something. It's to create permanence in the context of marriage. It has, by design, an adhesive quality. Okay, that's why the Bible speaks strongly against being loose sexually. Okay, because what that loose sexual activity does is it weakens and at some level can threaten the intimate, permanent bond that God has designed for the context of marriage. Okay, so Jesus asserts first that marriage is between a man and a woman, that marriage creates a bond that is permanent, that stands the test of time, and that, I think, implies that there is a sense of hope and joy in the context of that relationship. And then he says, the two become one flesh. They are united in an inseparable fashion. Okay, and to break that bond will always result in damage at some level. Okay, the way I've illustrated this in the past is if you plant two plants in one pot and let them intertwine and grow together, there is no way to separate those plants without doing damage to both. Okay? And I think that helps helps to understand a little bit of what's going on in this one flesh, this union that God intends in the context of marriage. It cannot be neatly separated or separated without uh, some level of consequence. 
All right, Jesus then gets emphatic. He says, so they are no longer two, but one. Okay, so what are the, what are the purposes of this union, this physical union in the context of marriage, okay? Let me just lay these out for you real quickly. One is for procreation, okay? It's obvious that children come through the act of marriage, so that's one of the purposes. And it's interesting that that birth of children, the God-designed context is marriage. Secondly, is to promote intimacy. In verse 7, Jesus says he becomes united to his wife. It is not simply talking about the contract or the agreement. It is also talking about what is pictured and what is enjoyed in the context of physical intimacy. So that, that act of marriage is to promote intimacy. It is, it is to produce a mutual enjoyment that depicts one flesh and strengthens the marital bond. Okay, that is the design and aim of God in the act of marriage. Thirdly, it is to picture permanence. Okay, that's why then, if if the aim of the act of marriage is to depict and picture permanence, then it becomes very clear that the only appropriate context for that act is in the context of marriage. Okay, because it, it is it is meant to bring together in a permanent fashion. Jesus then makes a statement that you've often heard in marriage ceremonies, okay? Uh, once, a, a, the, you know, the individual that's doing the, the marriage ceremony uh, goes through everything and, uh, you know, does the vows, everything's done, and says something like this. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, when a pastor in the context of a wedding ceremony says that, he's quoting from the words of Jesus in this text. That statement, what God has joined together, let no one separate, okay, is the conclusion of Jesus' discussion from original design and intent. Does that make sense? So you have original design and intent. When that is properly understood, particularly in the picture of the physical union, giving us conclusions about the permanence of marriage, Jesus says, when you understand that, then this directive becomes clear. And this is his answer to the question, can I divorce my wife for any reason? Jesus' answer ultimately is, go look at original design. And here's the conclusion Jesus is saying that I see clearly in original design. What God has brought together, let no one separate. Now, here's what that tells me about marriage. And it's a beautiful picture. It tells me that marriage is a, at some level a miraculous work of God. God in the context of marriage is bringing people together at the deepest level of human intimacy. And he aims for that union. God's purpose for that union is permanence because it produces a context in which children can be properly and lovingly raised. Okay, so the divine design is permanence. I, I was thinking last night as I was going through this text a little further, and I brought my little black book. This is the book I use for weddings, okay? And I, I, I went back and I just said, I'm going to check something. I'm going to check if I've ever given vows that had the word if in them, okay? Meaning, did anybody in, give, in saying their marital vows ever 
raise a condition that I'll do this, 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 and this if, all right? There's certainly, there's part of you that's going to say, I hope you've never done that, okay? I knew I'd never, I, I knew I never had done that, but I, I pulled it out and I looked at it and I thought about how, <clears throat> how broad, how comprehensive, how unconditional the promises are that are made on the day of a wedding. And, and you can look at it, it's, it's in sickness and in health, it's forsaking all others, keeping yourself for her or him alone as long as you both shall live. And the reason that statement is made, it is a nod to permanence. And the reason, even in a context where people are unclear about God's directive relating to marriage or they just simply don't have regard for what God says about marriage that I have yet to this day, personally, heard marital vows that gave an exit door or a parachute. And I believe this is why. If you are cognizant of the, uh, of the value of marriage and if you have some sense of its purpose, even if you're biblically uninformed at some level, you want it to be true that that marriage will last a lifetime. And my observation as I look at something like this in scripture, my observation has often been this. My heart in the context of a wedding ceremony, when I am performing a wedding ceremony, when I'm standing here beside the groom and the bride is coming down, radiant, beautiful, I look over at the groom, I see the joy that he's experiencing in that moment. Everybody sitting in that room is caught up in the beauty of what they are watching and they want what is said up front to be true, right? There, there's just a natural desire for that because that is God's design. And that is only and always destroyed by my selfish tendencies. The only threat to our marriage between my wife and I is my sinful tendencies and her sinful tendencies. That's the only thing that stands between the, the beauty that we long for in a marriage ceremony, the permanence that Jesus talks about here. When you look at this text, if you're married, there's something in your heart that wants that to be true for you. And you know that he's not seeking to bind you in a difficult circumstance. He's seeking to bring you into a circumstance where there is the fullness of his intended purpose, where there is joy, where there is hope, where there is a beautiful context for children to be raised in. We know that, right? And we long for that. But what gets in the way? What gets in the way is my selfish tendencies, my selfish desires. Get in the way of that beautiful picture that God designs all right, so that gives us the original teaching that is built on the first book of the Bible, okay? It tells me that marriage is created by God. It's created for procreation. It's between a man and a woman. It's intended for pleasure. It's intended to bind together in a permanent union. That's the design and plan of God. Well, the truth is, and I think as we look through it, is that many of us, in the context of church life, in the context of our culture, know what it is to see struggles. Almost every person in this room this morning, at some level, has been affected by this topic. Okay, whether it's through divorce in their own family, in their personal life, 
extended family, close friends, we have all kind of wrestled with the struggle and the difficulty of this truth. We want it to be true, but we also want some room for compromise, right? So what I long for on the wedding day, for every wedding I've ever been to, I want it to be true. I want it, I want it to last a lifetime. There's also a part of me that when I see various circumstances in people's lives, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if we could modify, adjust, recraft. You know what I'm saying, right? That's a natural tendency. And what we are always doing is acknowledging that in the context of human relationships, there is a hard-heartedness that Jesus acknowledged in the writing of Moses that is pervasive. So what does Jesus in this text then say about the topic of divorce? Okay, and I, so, so let me just see if we can, we can walk through this. God gives clear directives to the married. Because as creator, he knows best. So from verses 6 to 9, I conclude this. Divorce is clearly not part of the original design. Okay? Is that fair, right? From verse 9. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Which, which indicates that when there's struggle in the context of marriage and difficulty, what should I as a Christian do? I should... Strive. I, I, I want to use the word fight for my marriage, but I, I don't, that, that may carry the wrong overtones, okay? I should strive to find peace, to find unity, to find hope for the marriage that I'm in. That's what the biblical text is going to argue. So if you come to me after church and you say, Pastor Tim, what should I do in this situation? If you're married, I will help you fight for your marriage, okay? Because I believe that honors the original intent and design. So divorce is not part of the original design. Permanence is. Okay? Secondly, verses 10 through 11. And this, now the disciples, after hearing this, what God is doing together, let no one separate. In Matthew 19, same context, they're like, whoa. It's probably better that you don't get married. Okay, and, and you can understand why they would say that. There are two things going on in the New Testament context. There is the struggle and suffering of Christ following that they are anticipating. How does that fit into the context of marriage? Jesus' answer is very clear. You don't abandon your marriage because things are hard in your external world. And in the context of your married life, you fight. To retain the permanence that God designed in the context of marriage for his glory. In verses 10 to 12 then, the disciples come and they're like, so when they were in the house, the disciples asked Jesus about this. About this being clearly the discussion about marriage and the conclusion that divorce is not allowed by God. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her, that is against the wife that was divorced. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery against her husband. So that the, 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 the way that I can, I think, best say this is this. Okay? Divorce is not part of the original design. And divorce for remarriage is adultery 
against the first mate and always violates the original intent of marriage. Okay, does that make sense? So from that text, divorce for remarriage is adultery against the first mate and it violates the sanctity of that marriage. When I say the sanctity of that marriage, I mean the God intended design and purpose. It it does damage to the message that God is sending to the world in the context and through the context of our marriages. Now, if you're versed more broadly in scripture, you know that there in Matthew 19 and in 1 Corinthians 7, there are two exceptions. You can call them concessions to human sinfulness, meaning at times... The original design and the original plan of God is always favored, always desired, always best. It's what your heart always longs for. Okay, you want it to work out. You want to see it come together. There is very little in life that that is better than seeing a marriage struggle, work through the struggle with a God-given commitment to permanence and find success and hope in that relationship. It is a beautiful story every time it happens. God's word in this context clearly speaks against divorce. And it says that divorce for remarriage, for the purpose of remarriage, is adultery. Are there any exceptions to that rule? Okay, and I think there are two exceptions. One's found in Matthew 19. One is found in 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, in in. Matthew 19, the exception is marital unfaithfulness. So if, and and I would add these words to that, I would say hard-hearted marital unfaithfulness based on Matthew 19 becomes justification for divorce and seems to clearly allow for the possibility of remarriage for that individual, okay? When there is hard-hearted adultery, What happens when there is a violation of the marriage contract or the marriage covenant or commitment? Well, I, my, my, as a pastor, my first desire is to strive to find reconciliation. To work with a couple as a pastoral team, that would be our desire. That we would be seeking with that couple to find common ground, to find a way to reconcile and bring correction and hope in the, in the context of that marriage that has been deeply fractured. There, there, there is in Matthew 19, I believe, a rather clear nod to the possibility of divorce for marital unfaithfulness. So if someone goes out, is intimate with someone else, they have done damage to that marital relationship, and there is in Matthew 19 the possibility of divorce. It's not a command, but there is an allowance for it for protection reasons. Okay? Secondly, The Bible seems in 1 Corinthians 7 in the writings of Paul to allow for divorce in the context of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Okay? So someone is, it becomes a believer. Their, their spouse is not a believer. The spouse who is not a believer is profoundly unhappy in his situation, says to his wife or to her husband, I'm done. Paul says to that person, Don't you be the one that runs, but don't you be the one that holds them in by guilt. If they want to depart, 1 Corinthians 7 seems to be clear. If they want to depart, let them depart. 
All right, don't fight it. The, 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 the party that remains behind is not under bondage, which seems to indicate that there is an open path towards remarriage for that individual. Okay, all of these things are a little complicated. If you have questions after we discuss this in this format, please feel free to ask them. So the two concessions or exceptions seem to be marital unfaithfulness, Matthew 19, and desertion of an unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, now, what should we do if we are dealing with someone who is going through an incredibly difficult season in their marriage? As a pastoral team, our desire is always going to be to help people fight to protect the sanctity of their marriage because we believe in the original intent and design of God. Okay, we're going to say, someone comes and asks, we're going to say, well, let's look at what the Bible says and try to carefully and hopefully gently walk people through biblical truth so that they can come to a conclusion that honors and glorifies God. So then this question emerges from this text. What if I divorced and remarried or what if I was the offending party and I'm now remarried? What should I do? Okay, and I think that's perhaps one of the most uh, salient questions in our culture when you have this discussion. And here's what I would say. If there is an understanding that I was the guilty party in the context of that divorce, I need to confess that before God with hope in the promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Meaning this, divorce is not an unpardonable, unforgivable sin. I don't have to wear a letter on my shirt the rest of my life. And I don't need to wear a letter on my heart for the rest of my life. If I made a mistake in the past, if I violated clearly God's law in the past, I need to go to him just like I need to do on a regular basis and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Okay? So I think it's very important that we understand that there is a need to confess it and then to shake off, to shed the bondage of guilt, the bondage of remorse, the bondage of regret, because we know that my sin is not greater than the grace of God in my life, okay? So we, in the context of all of the brokenness and all of the struggle, we need to be people that raise the grace of God as hope, just like Jesus raises earlier in this text, original design as hopeful, we also raise the topic of forgiveness if we've failed, if we've uh, broken contract with people in the context of marriage. We need to get that right with God. And some people have asked this question. If I've remarried, am I in perpetual sin? I think the answer is no. Here's, I think, what God calls every believer to do. In the context that you are in today, in your current marital situation. Now, let me say this real quick. If in the past... You violated someone or offended against a mate that you are now divorced from and you today understand, I'd never ask forgiveness for that. I would encourage you to write a letter, make a phone call and get that cleared up, okay? So that I don't live with a true sense of guilt. No, instead I should, I should do what I should do in any circumstance where I've stepped outside of the boundary of God's word. I need to go to that person confess that sin and get that right between me and them and me and God, okay? Doesn't mean I'm always gonna get the response I want, but it is my obligation as a believer 
to deal with the things that I can and ought to deal with. Now, one of the other questions that comes up is, as, as a leadership team in our church, you know, our conviction is this. Your past is your past. Okay? All of us have past. All of us have history that we're not proud of. It's in the past. Okay? It's, if, if you've confessed it, it's under the blood of Christ, it's forgiven, it's gone. It's behind God's back, never to be see the light of day again. Okay? If you come to me today... And you say, look, here's my history. I've got a lot of brokenness. I'm going to say, you know what? Let's start where you are. Just like all of us have to on a daily basis. Let's start where we are today. And in the context of our current marriage, let's be faithful to the God-given directives that are present in the teachings of Scripture. Okay? Forget regret. Forget remorse. All right? Forget all of that. And commit yourself to obeying God today in the context of your situation that you're in. Now, as I've thought through this, I, 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 the question has come to mind, why fight not in, okay, but for your marriage? Why do that? And I think the answer to that question is this. It, we should fight for our marriages and strive to preserve them to the best of our God-given ability because marriage not only is about procreation, it's not only about the pleasure and enjoyment of the marital relationship, it is also about proclaiming. Okay, a strong marriage makes a statement concerning God's grace and his work. In Ephesians 4.32, and, and, and I think as we look at this topic, all of us are going to admit that marriage is challenging, right? That we all walk through seasons when 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 we need to, to, to reclaim the biblical concept of understanding our sinfulness and our, our need for grace, the sinfulness of our mate and their need for God's grace. And so in Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So if you're struggling in your marriage, what do you need to do? Don't focus on your mates. Don't focus on the person that you have animosity towards. Think about how God deals with you in your sinfulness and respond out of that model to the undeserving person in your life. Okay, it's that simple. I'm not saying it's easy. But I am saying it is literally that simple. Remember how God in your brokenness responds to you when you cry out to him and say, God, I'm wrong. I've sinned. And then here's what Paul says. Paul says, forgive one another. Live with one another in light of the love that God has for you. That will be transformational. And it is proclaiming. Your kids know that your marriage isn't perfect. I hope that's not a newsflash. Okay? They know that it's not perfect. What they need to see is the gospel lived out in your daily life. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. How? What if she's this or that? Husbands, love your wives without condition as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I believe the husband in this context has the responsibility to lead in love, to demonstrate for his wife and his extended family the truth of the gospel. You see, folks, we can be people of hope because there is grace there's forgiveness, there's restoration. 
No matter what my current situation is in my marriage, there is hope. And when we embrace the God-given model for marriage, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave her forgiveness, protection, brought her, the church, into a relationship of permanence. And when we live like that in an imperfect setting, it is gospel proclaiming. That's the beauty of restoration. That's the beauty of rising out of brokenness in relationships, particularly in the context of marriage, where the majority of people throw it away. Jesus says, what God joined together, let no one separate, which would give me pause. If I'm contemplating throwing away my marriage, Jesus says, oh no, no, no. Work that out. Love your wife like Christ loves the church. Wife, love your husband in the way that Christ loves you. And allow the gospel to be manifested in the broken context of your marriage for the glory of God. Go back to original design. Agree with God that your marriage is permanent. And then start to address, under the grace of God, the beautiful things that he can do and desires to do in the context of your marriage. How can that happen? Is there hope for my heart that struggles to love in the way that I should? Is there hope to avoid divorce and, 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 and honor the permanence that God intends for the context of marriage? I think the answer is in my flesh, absolutely not. I have often pondered what my life would be like if I did not know Christ. I have often thought about that. I am fairly certain that I would not still be married. Because I can be a total jerk. <laughs> I'm just saying. I sometimes have you ever had behavior that you surprise yourself? Okay, I'm capable of that kind of stuff. Where I'm like, wow, I, I just said that. In Galatians five, Paul gives us this advice as believers. He says, "So I say, walk by the Spirit." And you will no longer fulfill the desires of the flesh. Folks, here's the truth. As Christians, we are brought into a new relationship with God. We are part of a new community that is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And in that context, marriage should be in, in, in incredible ways more successful, more joyful than they are in the world around us. Because we have the blessing and benefit of God's indwelling personal presence, which if we yield to it, if we walk in it, if we keep in step with the Spirit of God, the things that we long for when we watch a marriage ceremony can become true in our lives. As we walk in humility, in gentleness. Because as I walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5 says this, this is what God will produce. He'll produce his fruit. As I yield to the pruning and work of the Spirit of God, he will begin to unleash his work in my life in beautiful ways. And as he does it, the fruit of the Spirit that begins to emerge in my life and in my marriage will be this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
right? This is the beautiful bouquet of virtues that can sit on the table of your marital life. And it can beautify what, what, what you and I struggle with. If we just begin to say, God, on a daily basis, I want to walk in the truth of the Spirit. I want to walk surrendered to the Spirit so that my marriage doesn't end up on the heap of divorce. I want to honor you, God, by being submissive to your personal presence in my life as you seek to guide and shape and transform me so that the original intent of marriage permanence can be present in my life. And when it's present in my life, my marriage becomes gospel proclaiming. Folks, it's not just about you. It's not just about your happiness and your marriage. It's about Christ. It's about glorifying God in a world where people are longing to see that truth, but rarely see it. Make what you long for at every wedding ceremony true in your life by yielding to the truth that God's word offers on this topic. Secondly, yield to the spirit of God as he prompts you to walk in that truth. Be loving, be kind, be tenderhearted because that is how Christ is to you. And mom and dad, here's what you give your kids. You give your kids hope. You give your kids an appropriate view of marriage because marriage is the most crucial building block of culture. Our country needs strong homes. Your kids need to see you living out biblical truth in the context of an imperfect marriage so that they know that there is hope for them. May God help us to live in the context of our marriages in a way that honors and glorifies his design, his intent, and ultimately is proclaiming. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I I know in this uh, text there are incredibly difficult and complicated questions that come up. And so, Father, my prayer is that as we assess this topic, our desire would not be to find happiness, <laughs> but our desire would be to find your will and do it, and in doing your will to find true joy in our lives. God, may we as a church be filled with strong marriages that proclaim the gospel and give hope to our children. Lord, bless us in applying these truths to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you all.